And we're live and I've got Rob here with me. Uh, welcome to the Property Funder podcast. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. If you are not new to the podcast, but you're not a subscriber, please do get subscribed, like and subscribe so we can keep talking to fascinating and inspiring people like Rob, who we've got here today. Um, Rob, what's your full name? What's your business? And please describe what your business does. Well, firstly, Michael, thank you so much for inviting me onto this podcast. Uh, that's the thank yous out the way. So I'm Rob Jupp. I'm the group CEO of the Brightstar Group. We have a portfolio of three businesses, uh, Brightstar Financial, which is a largely B2B business based here in Billericay, which the, uh, the sign behind me gives away where I am. We have uh, Serious Property Finance, which is our high net worth Southeast and London centric, although they do have deals outside of the M25, which is based in the city of London. Um, we have a third company within our portfolio called Soulstar Insurance, uh, which is uh, an insurance company that we invested in and wholly own uh, from last year. We, we agreed to do that deal three days after the mini budget. So we're either um, complete and utter fools or fantastic uh, visionaries. So uh, yeah, we bought a, a, a insurance business as well. So that's that's the three businesses within the group. Uh, I'm a, a careerist in the, the mortgage and lending industry. I um, It was my first job out of uh, university uh, 30 years ago, uh, 31 years ago to be exact actually. So I'm now officially in my fourth decade in this industry. Um, I've worked in a, a variety of roles, generally an entrepreneur. I've um, I've bought and sold a variety of businesses. Um, some uh, done, did really well and good premium and others um, in true entrepreneurial style didn't uh, work out quite as I'd hoped for. So that's my backstop. Uh, I'm a, a middle aged I'm I used to say just about middle age. I guess I'm a mid middle aged man, not the late middle aged man. Uh, live in Essex, uh, married happily for over 25 years with two teenage sons. Well, um, lots to unpack there, and I, I think um, if you think that we're we're just going to let you sc scratch the surface of of what's obviously been a legendary career, Rob. Uh, well, we've you've got another thing coming. We'll we'll, we'll go into a bit more detail on that. Um, okay. I'm going to start in a slightly different route because um, it's going to sound like a slightly bizarre question. In trying to sort of do a bit of promo for this particular podcast episode and ask some uh, ask some of our listeners some uh, to to submit some questions that they might have for you, um, I tried to tag you um, in some posts on social media, oh. and I know I know we we used to connect with each other on on social media because you once told me off uh, for being rude about Neil Mopé when Brighton beat Arsenal once. Uh, so I was just curious as to as to why you're, you, you've decided to leave social media, because I couldn't find you either on LinkedIn or, or Twitter. Um, I'm presuming that that's there's a social media sort of ban on all fronts. What what sparked that? Because um, oh, I'm, 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 I'm very curious. What a great first question. You've got the scoop here, because actually, um, a few people have asked me that in terms of friendship groups. I've had a, a, a couple more well-meaning friends from you know school days that are genuinely concerned that there's a problem. 
uh, which is why I've pulled out. But actually, um, this is the first time on record I've answered that question. So you have a scoop. What a great way to start. Um, yeah, it won't get better from this. So um, I was a very, very early uh, adopter of social media. I was one of the first people in the industry to um, to have a Twitter account, which is why I had, you know, at Rob Jupp as opposed to some silly name and some uh, letters after. I think it was 2009 I first started uh, my Twitter account. My LinkedIn account I had since about 2004. Both platforms I had multiple followers. LinkedIn I had in excess of 10,000 followers. Uh, Twitter I think the last count I had about 6,000 followers. So they were pretty prolific platforms for me. But this is the um, this this is the moment really to, to share. Um, it, it was making me feel unhappy. And I know this is, is, is a bit bizarre because this will be going out on social media, but um, I think I started to have the early signs of a bit of a social media addiction. And I, I think that's probably one of the saddest addictions I think anyone's ever heard of. You know, I mean, it's less conventional, but I'm just being very honest. And I think, you know, I was getting to a point where what, what was um, a really great platform for uh, information and knowledge, particularly I'm talking about Twitter. I felt uh, more recently had become quite a toxic place. And, you know, do I do I sort of blame the sort of Trump era for that? I, I think to a degree, but there was this sort of rise of extremism, extreme right wing views, extreme left wing views and and almost like, you know, people just couldn't agree about anything. And it became quite a toxic environment. And I think I was just feeling like I wanted to just see what was going on but actually all that happened for most part was um was was people rowing about extreme views and um it was getting me it was getting it was making me cross it was making me angry and you know I tried to do you know social media detoxes where I pulled out for a bit of time and that really wasn't it I was getting drawn back in you know because someone said have you seen who's such and such has said and I'm going well no well, I'm going to do it now I think with LinkedIn, it was slightly different. So um, I, I understand that in, in the modern world, we all want to market ourselves uh, in every possible way we can and, and therefore our businesses. But I, I kind of felt that, that LinkedIn was becoming really disingenuous and um, and actually in its own way quite toxic, where I saw too many people not really demonstrated um, honesty in the way they were just trying to deliver that that sense of perfection and that that sort of Facebook world of you know roses around the windows and and everything being great in their life um which I, I kind of felt was was not you know when you kind of you see someone post and you go yeah but I know that's not I know that's not true truthful that's not what it's like what are you trying to do that and and then I was seeing the effect it was having on people and um, talking to people and people feeling quite inadequate and feeling like, you know, that they weren't really doing anything in their lives because they weren't weren't fulfilling the bullshit world of of, of what social media. And I, I just got to a point and I thought, you know what, actually, if I, you know, this the with, with your phones, it gives you the um, the usage, doesn't it, in the week uh, and, you know, what you've done and how long you spend and have you as your usage gone up or gone down and what platforms. And I was spending a ridiculous amount of time looking at social media. And I'm thinking, what well, if I then don't spend that time on social media, what else can I do in that time? And I thought about it and I thought, right, well, you know, I've got two charities 
I'm both an ambassador of one, a trustee of another, spend a bit more time with them. I'm president of my local rugby club. I could spend a bit more time with them. Um, I love reading. I can't remember the last time I sat down and read a good book. I like to just spend time with the people that um, I love. And actually, was there times when one of my children would be talking to me? And actually, I wouldn't be listening because I'd be looking at my phone. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So it, it was it was honesty from my perspective going, this is a form of addiction. And actually, it's not a healthy addiction. It's an addiction that is wasting time. So, you know, did I go down the, the detox route and just say, well, OK, I've got to have a bit more um, self-control, a bit more discipline? Well, I knew I didn't. I knew I'd failed miserably multiple times. Or do I just accept that actually for things to change, I really had to go cold turkey on this. So it's what I did. I deleted both platforms. I think LinkedIn gives you maybe 48 hours to change your mind. Um, 48 hours went and passed. I hadn't changed my mind. And I did the same um, through Twitter. And I think, you know, is is there still a part of me that probably feels like, um, you know, I'm a little bit out of touch. There's a little bit of me feeling a bit like that because I don't have the instant knowledge but I kind of look sort of 10 12 weeks after I did this and all the things I've done in in the time that I actually I would have spent on social media um and I've been far much more productive both as the CEO of my group both as a father as a husband as a friend you know as a president of my rugby club as an ambassador and trustee of my um of my charities and also dare I say it, I've actually given myself a bit more of me time a bit more time to read a paper or to look at the BBC website and actually look at as much as possible an unbiased um, view of what was actually happening in the world as opposed to a, an opinion, a personal opinion, what's going. Uh, and I just I just think for me, it's just been a really good cathartic thing. So uh, well done for pointing that out. I'm not what I, what I didn't do is I didn't do what a lot of people do and do this great big announcement. That I'm leaving social media because that's just not me. I just quietly moved away from it, deleted my accounts and thought that no one would ever realise. And here we are. You did realise. <laughs> well, yeah. It, well, yeah, as uh, as you say, you didn't make a big announcement about it. And I suppose I just stumbled across it. been like, oh, OK, this is uh, that was, I would say, unexpected. Um, but yeah it was it was a little bit unexpected to not see not see you have a presence given given your profile within the industry um i thought it was unusual but actually i i think i see i i hear exactly what you're saying and and actually i think it, i'm quite supportive of it because i i agree with you i mean uh, the word i wrote down was addiction but it's something that i probably can relate to as well you know before we got on here uh got on to speaking i probably spent I probably spent the best part of an hour and a half on various social media this morning. Um, now, it's a difficult one because I I use, um, you know, I, I consume social media for different reasons. I use Instagram because it's a good way of connecting with friends, mostly who you have who you haven't seen. I don't really like using Facebook. Twitter for me is a, is a new is a new source. But uh, and and so that's the one actually I probably spend most time on. That's very difficult. I, I your comment disingenuous on on linkedin um is an interesting one because i think it's that you, you i think you're right that people are presenting these sort of un th these very varnished very veneered polished versions of themselves 
on LinkedIn, like the everything rose, everything's rosy story and, you know, record month and, you know, and, and always shout, shouting things from the rooftops. And I think, and, and I know you, and, and the point you made was, was right. There's so many people that you know them and they're, they're making these, uh, they're making these statements and these claims that things are wonderful. Yet at the same time, when you talk to them privately, you know that that's not the case. And I, and I completely see where you're coming from on that. But I'm guilty so, of that. I mean, you know, have I been disingenuous in the past by delivering a manipulative message of marketing on social media? Yes, I have. So, you know, uh, you know, he is without seeing cast the first stone. I'm a sinner. I have absolutely used and abused those platforms. So what I'm not doing here is I'm not casting any view to say those platforms and social media are evil. I'm saying for me, for Rob Jupp, at my time in life, 52 years of age, I've made a lifestyle choice that I was spending far too much time on those. They were making me feel more unhappy than happy. And therefore I made the decision. So, you know, to come off, I, you know, my business uses those platforms extensively and will continue to. And I made uh, a conversation, I had a conversation with um, with our two business development managers and say, look, you know, you must continue doing, you're doing fantastic work there. It's a brilliant way of you getting your message out. But, you know, I, I, I guess, um, most people kind of know me anyway. I've been around, it's because I'm so old, I've been around forever. Uh, you know, I've been at the, uh, at the sort of cutting edge of, of things, good and bad, for, for at least two of the three decades. And, you know, the, the business can't be me. It's got to be more about other people in the business. We've got almost 100 staff here. And at times it it, it, it can feel and look like the cult of one, can't it? And we can all relate to that a little bit. And I think that's not good. It's not good for, um, it's not good in terms of um, making sure your business has sustainability, that it has a significant value. And it could falsely be seen as too reliant and heavily reliant on on the cult of personality as opposed to the actual physical business that you're dealing with so again i'm not saying i left because everyone was an idiot and i wasn't i've been guilty of being i've been guilty of doing all the things that i i'm um i'm saying i don't like i've been guilty of having public rows and public spats i know you have as well you know okay I have. I've done that. I've fallen out with lots of people. And at times I've probably enjoyed falling out with those people publicly because there's a bit of blood sport. But, you know, right here, right now, it's not for me and uh, it's not something that I, I miss. And actually, my new world of of having a bit more time to do stuff that really matters to me is, is agreeable for me and my mental health as well. Yeah, I, I think I think that's right. Fully support that. I mean, it, it's interesting you talk about that cult of one. Um you know, once upon a time, Zahair and I had a um, had a conversation, and Zahair basically said to me, "Can you wind? Can you dial back your social media posting? Um, because Zahair's not very he's not a social media person, really. Doesn't really post. He consumes a little bit, but not not massively. And he, he someone once said, Zahair's like, oh yeah, I'm uh, yeah, I'm I'm from Avermore. I said, oh, Avermore, that's Michael's company, isn't it? And obviously Zahair and I own business equally. And, and 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 I think that it was like oh right so because I was posting and I was very active posting and he wasn't it was it was creating this impression that I was I was the owner and I was I was you know yeah. as you say yeah. the cult of one um you know we've obviously that's that we sort of worked through that and that's all fine now but um particularly as we're not the people that are front and center of the business but I completely understand where you're coming from and you know I mean just just to draw a line under it I think that once upon a time, 
using Twitter as an example, you could you could say things and you you could say say something that would be intelligent and reasonable and smart and that would have that comment would have a good would have a good reach and that all of your followers would see that and maybe that would get promoted beyond your your own followers. Now the only way you're going to kind of get past that sort of that, that bubble um, is by having very extreme kind of what what they call what what the young kids call spicy hot takes. Yeah. And if you don't have a, and if you don't have an extreme view, something that's really quite out there, you're not going to pierce that bubble. And I think that's that. No, I'm not surprised that you you found yourself in a situation where um, it was making you unhappy because most likely your feed was just a, a stream of a, a stream of content that was desi- that was almost designed to out- make you feel outraged or annoyed. Um, well, that's what AI does. That's the brilliance yeah. of AI, isn't it? I mean, I've I've not gone on TikTok, and people tell me that's that's a hundred times worse because that will just put your whole timeline with the activity that it deems that you will want to see. But you know, that's that's the thing of AI, and you kind of understand that you we are all being manipulated by by AI, and that's just the way it is. So um, again, with, without without wanting to sound like I'm I'm a know it all, it it was right for me. It, it won't be right for others. I'm I'm slightly older than most people in the industry. I understand why people would want to market themselves along the lines. There are some really good, um, really honest people um, on on LinkedIn that have celebrated, you know, um, their recovery from addictions and mental health and postnatal depression and and use it as a real platform for change. So what I'm not doing here is I'm not saying. You know, I, I'm not I'm not being extreme in my view to say that everybody that uses it is this or that far from it. I'm just saying for me right here in my life, it was the right time to call it a day. Right. Well, anyway, we'll draw a line under it, but you heard it here first, folks. So uh, we can thank Rob for for that particular insight. And uh, hopefully we will all respect uh, Rob's decision there as as I do. Um, let's uh, nice segue, actually, because you raised the point around AI. Um, what do you what do you see as the opportunities and threats of AI in the in in I suppose to your businesses and then to the specialist finance arena more more generally? That's a good question. Um, that's your second good question. Is that is that going to be it? Is there going to be other good questions as well? Or is it all? Well, I, I don't. I, I I may I may disappoint you, Rob. So I'm not going to. I'm not going to set myself up to fail. But uh, you, ne- so. you, ne- you never know. You never know. I hope so. That first one was an absolute corker. Well. Um, right. So to answer your question, uh, do I do I fear AI as as a parent? Yes, I do. As a human being, yes, I do. I fear it immensely. I think it has the, you know, all of those um, sci-fi films when we were growing up. You know, you kind of look at those and go, oh my god, there was an element, you know, not quite yet, you know, cars flying through the air, but there, there's there's lots of similarities about the direction of flight on where society and civilization is going, and you, and you have to say AI gets them to that point much much quicker and and I think when you've got the architects of AI going this has gone too far this needs to be stopped because this has the genuine potential to be catastrophic to the continuation of civilization you have to stand up and and think right that's that's the macro you know um, 160 character bullshit response the the here and now you know AI is a really useful tool in most businesses it can allow some of the granular thought processes that everybody's like to have um, had quickly to avoid stupid decision making questions being asked and you get to quicker, faster, safer, 
more coherent decisions. That's got to be really, really positive. Um, so, you know, I, I think kind of where it's gone so far is 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 OK. I don't see or feel anything that makes me feel and look like I'm still not in control. I think we probably all were a bit slow to understand um, the embedded intelligence within our smartphones. I think there was a few people that seemed like they were conspiracy theorists when they kept saying you know, that your phone was listening to you and all the rest of it. Well, actually, there's an element of truth in that. So so I think, you know, now we know that this this mobile device that everybody pretty much has in their life from children all the way up to to pensioners um, and it has the ability to to control you if you allow it to. But you must always be in control. You must always be in control of this. You must always look at AI as an opportunity to enhance your service, to get to uh, more efficient economies of scale, but also understand that it has the potential in um, making some bad decisions. And I think, you know, to answer your question, we talk about specialist lending, which is where uh, we spend most of our days in and where you spend some of your days in. It's pretty difficult. I mean, we, we've 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 spent fortunes on trying to um, formulate it into more of a process, and it's very very difficult to do because ultimately there are people that are making decisions. In most cases, you know, they're they're looking at a, a range of factors, and they're saying, you know, based on warranties, uh, based on experience, based on instinct, based on a collegiate decision-making process or, or anything in between. This is the deal we want to do and the deal we don't want to do. And um, I can think of a, a lot of cases that lenders that have used a far too automated system just haven't got because the system just doesn't want to do it. And you kind of go to a lender and say, well, this and they go, well, what's the problem? Like, well, there isn't one really. Um, you know, it's, it's the, the key score is a little bit low because um, they don't have much credit. OK, well, that's great. We can do that deal. So it's a it's a it's a threat and an opportunity where, it, where where's most things. But the, the threat of AI um, is is much, much bigger and, and deeper than perhaps the opportunity that it gives. I mean, it, it, that, that leads me on to a question of uh, that actually Dimitri and the Avemore CEO's um, given me, which is which is around essentially, you know, it, it centers around your how you approach the increasing disintermediation of the mortgage broking industry and i suppose ai and tech is is a is going to be a big driver in that um what's you know how how do you see that playing out in the short to medium term and and what what are, what are the steps you're taking to um to make sure that that your brands i mean I, I, we can talk about Soulstar as well, but I'm, I suppose particularly in the finance space. Um, but I suppose maybe it's relevant to Soulstar as well. Um, how how you how you ma maintain relevance in an increasingly disintermediated marketplace? Well, I've been looking for 30 years to try and find the client that can do it better than us, and I'm still looking for them because because we haven't found them. I've found a lot of clients that think they can do it better than us, and will tell you that they can do it better than us, and show you how. They can do it better than us, but then they're quite easy to um, to sort of re-educate or disinform. So mm. you know that that's a starting point. You know we speak to customers every single day. We listen patiently to the customer's story and try and um, you know match up. And 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 so many of those um, customers, be it you know 
brokers themselves or the general public will come to us with yeah, I'm just going to speak to you because X has said to me I should do, but I think I'm okay and I don't really feel like you can add any value. You know, and and I I, I haven't come across a conversation where, um, you know, within a few minutes you're already not able to add some value to those conversations and to those thought processes. So that's the first thing. You know, we're not dealing with we're not dealing with easy, super vanilla, straightforward transactions that are simply based on a sequence of questions, depending what the answers are, will be whether we can go ahead with a solution or not. We're dealing with um, something a lot more sophisticated than that in most cases. And as a result of it being super sophisticated and also dynamic, i.e. throughout the process, decision making changes based on the information that you've got going. You know, it could be um, there's something that happens with the valuation. There's something that happens perhaps with the client's um, circumstances or with the market or, or whatever. And so so I think, you know, the, the, the decision making isn't just limited to the time you first have an interaction. It's all the way through. The other thing as well is you try and um, you dismiss uh, a history of relationship with a client post completion at your peril. Right. So the time when I'm seeing advisors being brilliant and being terrible as in the two extremes is not in getting a deal through it's getting a deal off a lender's balance sheet uh, and that's when true advisors will really show their value and their worth by the fact that they're doing what they say they're going to do and they're actually you know doing the hard yards they are often responding to a series of events that hasn't gone to plan you know, a build that's been more expensive, it's taken a lot longer, there's been implications and problems along the way, things have changed. That's the bit that I think, you know, um, really good brokers and intermediaries really have the win rate, which is second to none, when things go wrong post-completion. Yeah, and I would agree with that. I would definitely agree with that in terms of it. it it's the 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 true brokers and the mercenaries you know you, that's that's where i think you you, you draw the distinction isn't it that the ones that really care about the clients they care about the clients not just to, when they get their get paid the profits when they it, it's actually making sure that the client uh the, the client has a, a positive outcome through through the life of the loan and then beyond um and and understandably why wouldn't you want to maintain a maximum number of touch points with your client? Because the more times you're engaging with your client, the more opportunities that will come from that. Um, so all of that's completely understandable. And I think it makes you makes you make some really good points there, Rob, because it's yeah, the, I, I think that the, the you, you can probably automate a lot of the vanilla type situations. But when you get more specialists, as you say, it's, it becomes more difficult. I mean, at the moment, Zahir and I were actually working on trying to build some sort of robo underwriting platform but we are, we are conscious that it's not there to it won't be there to replace replace uh underwriters and credit analysts it will be to reduce the put the points of friction but at the end of the day you still need people that will sit behind that that will be managing the relationships and then also looking at the looking at the the things that don't fit into the box um Zahir and I often talk about what we call type one error and type two error and from a credit perspective. A type one error is essentially just lend, lending against bad credit. A type two error is when you're too cautious and that 
the the deal ultimately it's the deal feels right but because x y or z box isn't being ticked if you somehow then kick that deal out of bed you're missing out on an opportunity and it's and actually some of the some of the benefits of actually having good experienced people is understanding if this is from a lender's perspective is understanding that that's where the, the opportunity how do we add value in a market where there's 100 bridging lenders in the uk let's just use a brown number for example but it's something in that region bridging lenders who do some of whom do a bit of development we're obviously development and bridging how do you stand out from the crowd how do you differentiate yourself and the, and the key part is it just like from a from broker's perspective how do we stand out from the crowd we stand out from the crowd by being able to you know you know turn turn muck into brass isn't it you know one man's muck is another man's brass it's how do we how do we sift through the the information to actually see the opportunity and and deliver an outcome and uh, and a solution for the client so um i think that's a i think that's a very 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 well put well answered question um because i've asked a few of your peers around this ai question and i think you're probably one of the first to really um, talk about the post lending experience and how important that relationship management side of things is um, in, in terms of client outcomes and, and, and relationship management. And Michael, let, let me be clear. Um, how we've managed to to um, to be in business for as long as we have is, is simply down to one thing. That the thing that we do really well as a business, it's not unique to us. Really good businesses all do this. And this is going to sound really old fashioned is we talk to people, we pick up the phone and we have conversations. We go to meetings and meet people face to face. You know, we're not we're not judged in the value of our relationship and our client by the quality of the email that we send or the um, the quality of the pack that's been sent, although that's, of course, important. What we are judged by is the deliverability of what we've done you know and if we've gone to a meeting and we've looked into the whites of the lender's eyes and the light the whites the client's eyes as, as a sort of intermediary between the two what we need to do is we all need to get to an outcome that's right and fair now you know that that will mean often that you need to have a conversation with the customer before you take them on to say okay look i know this is what you want i've got to tell you i'm sorry you're not going to get it i will get you the very best deal that's available in the market but you know you're not in a world we're not in a world where you can have you can tell a lender what they're going to give you and and if you, if you feel you are I'm afraid you're going to be really really disappointed so I'll only take you on as a customer if you understand that you know uh, I'm paid on success so ultimately I'll only get paid when I deliver for you but you know you need to just accept that you know you're you're employing me as your professional in the same way as you would do you know surveyor or, or a, a lawyer and, and let me do my bit because that's what you're going to be paying me for ultimately and you've got to trust me and you've got to trust my reputation that's there for you to see if you want to check me out fine if you don't no problem go somewhere else up to you 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 employ you as you said you employ over 100 people i i, I know obviously knowing your business a little bit that a lot of those a lot of the people that work in your business are of a younger generation what you know what you might describe as a gen z um Certainly, it's certainly in our experience that it's more difficult. Um, it, it's more difficult to persuade people in their twenties who who are in the workforce to pick up the phone. They seem to be na more naturally inclined to to drop emails and 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 other forms of, I suppose, text communication. 
is that also your experience and yeah. how and how are how, how do how do you shift that culture how do you how do you adjust the culture so that they're that they're more inclined to, to do that either obviously number one face to face or number two pick up the phone yeah um absolutely michael it is our experience and um you know i, I can i can look at my own children actually who are teenagers and you know the the ability to communicate verbally is, is not as strong as it should be at their age in my opinion as, as hard as my wife and i have, have attempted so we just accept unfortunately in 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 the mass digitalization of life you know it's easier to send a message or a, even a you know even now a a voice message i, I suppose that should be progress really at least the talking yeah the voice message yeah. opposed to a live message and we've had people that have come to interviews and when asked about you know the job that they're doing we talk about it being very you know uh, we, we want you to speak to people we want you to um to, to to get on a really good relationship and like what you mean i've got to pick up the phone and speak to people like yeah and like, well, i'm not sure i can do that because i've never done it and you kind of think well that's a real i remember the first time i heard that i thought no that's not that's not the case but it's just the way it is so i think we have to just accept that you know that that, that is perhaps a generation that 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 isn't naturally uh, able to to do that but actually can do that reasonably quickly and we just sort of say okay you know as per all new employees that come into to any business but in our business particularly we kind of look at the raw material we understand there'll be gaps clearly knowledge but also skill gaps but it's up to us to understand and to um and to, to support where that where that exists and you know the first few times a little bit like doing anything for the first time you know might be reasonably terrifying but you know we do sort of co-calls we listen to calls we get feedback on how they could have done differently we uh listen to they get staff to listen to other co-workers on the phone just to sort of bits and bobs and very quickly it becomes second nature uh, it's just it's kind of trying to break that gen z cycle really of of just well you know and, and and where it's where it's most interesting and where it's most um, deal critical, actually, is on the delivery of bad news. Right. That yeah, is agree. that makes Completely my agree. blood boil. Right. If you're saying if you've got to give bad news, you have to pick up the phone and you have to show that person respect and have that conversation with them. Because actually, if you don't, it's cowardice. That's what it is. It's unprofessional and it's cowardice. And Michael, how many times when that conversation has been had with that customer and you, you've got to deliver a news that I'm afraid what you want, we can't provide. How many times does that go into another segue conversation where it takes you off a tangent? You actually end up with a solution that is different from the solution that they wanted, but it's a solution that still works. So that's what we're saying. You know, delivery of bad news is is critical to the relationship. You know, if, if I if I was being turned down for something and I found out via, via an email or even worse a WhatsApp I'd be I'd be mortified I'd be absolutely mortified but yet that's the number one issue that we probably have had to face with never ever ever that's three that's, that's three evers um, maybe one never give bad news via an email you pick up the phone and you have a conversation You've got to do that. And, and you know, it's now absolutely ingrained within the culture here. Yeah. Uh, and as it should be. And I think, uh, you know, whether I mean, it, it 
people are listening and, and watching outside outside of the property and specialist finance industries, you know, that's a, I, I think that's an industry should be a standard, not just in our industry, but across all industries. It just goes without saying. It's a bit like the analogy is like you, it, it's, it's the bloke who dumps his girlfriend by text. You know, it, 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 yeah, it's it's not a good look, is it? It's it, it's not not the way to do it. Um, you have to you have to pick up the phone and 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 make that call. And also, um, why do why do we feed? Why do we fear? Why do we, as a as, as you know, as as human beings, fear feedback? That I don't get that. Right? I don't get why we would not want to understand how we can improve ourselves and, and be the best version of ourselves and the best version of our business so you know we're we're hot on trust pilot we're hot on trust pilot yes because we see it as a really good marketing message to show how you know good we are and that the clients are, are being very specific about how we've delivered and that's great for customers that are looking to choose a, a, a provider to work with but, but secondly what's i think more important to me is when things go wrong because they will go wrong every the best business in the world will still have things go wrong and actually the stuff we've learned by listening to those feed that feedback and actually being prepared to give every single customer which they get every single customer whether their experience in our eyes has been good or bad has the ability via Trustpilot to give us their feedback right and and you know Yes, the vast majority of it is, is extremely positive. You know, when I'm looking to, to go to a hotel, I know about you, the first thing I do in, on um, TripAdvisor is I go on the one-star reviews, right? And I want to see culturally, number one, I want to see, is there a pattern what people are complaining about? Are they all saying it's really noisy and therefore that's not going to work for me? And secondly, what's the culture of that business? Is the culture of that business one that actually really welcomes that and genuinely is, is gutted and you know has reached out and accepted there's an issue or do they just either not bother responding which is what most people's response are or worse still they just start a row you know you're wrong i'm right you know you're an idiot for giving bad feedback what you're saying is completely unfounded there's no problems here so so i think that's really important you know get feedback understand that feedback works two ways and actually the most valuable piece of feedback is often when things don't go well and learn from it and actually look at your own business and be very inner looking and go what what could and should we be doing differently to improve the service because that doesn't start with complaints and sorts of complaints. that should be every single day that your business is open and even when it's not open as an entrepreneur you should be looking at trying to improve your, your environment every day well i, I mean listen I, I i think if if they aren't i'm going to make sure that anyone in every every business that i'm involved with listens to what you just said there because i think it's absolutely crucial um and actually i want to touch on another question that's been put forward by by one of our listeners which is um a, a chap called adam styles who i think you you may know of uh and he was he highlighted to me uh, and i'm sure you'll thank me for it as well um your success in the sunday times best places to work and and the culture that you seem to have established within brightstar and the rest within the brightstar group um how did you go about building that company culture because you know you you clearly have have got strong culture ingrained but what were the steps that you needed to to take to get into that position 
Well, thanks, Adam. I think Adam's Helix, Helix Finance. Yeah, Helix Structure right. Finance. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, he's a great advisor. He's doing doing great things. That's very kind of him to to say that. Uh, so yes, we we uh, 2019 and 2020 we uh, we made it into the Sunday Times top 100 companies to work for. We didn't just make it into that. We actually made it into first place. And in 2020, we achieved the highest score in the 21 year history of the Sunday Times best companies to work for. So fantastic, brilliant. Um, did we did we want to go in 2021 for Hattrick? Absolutely not. We we uh, did our thing. It was a great process. But you know what? That hasn't defined the company we are. The company culture actually is created from the launch pad of of the embryonic business that that that, that you as a leader want to try and create and I think you know that launch pad means that you are shaped by a lot of your own personal life experiences and actually in my case I was shaped by the things that had gone wrong in my life in my career the things that I look back and was really self-critical and very analytical and gone you know what if I had my time again these are the things that I would do differently and that's that's really quite difficult to do, but it's also very cathartic because actually the worst, the hardest person sometimes to to criticise is yourself. So that's the starting point. And actually kind of I wanted to create an environment here when um, in, in 2010, I decided that I was going to to go and start another company, that the business was going to be very, very different. It was going to be. Um, excuse my language at times, batshit crazy, that we were going to be a, a bit eccentric in some of the things we did. We were going to actively look at working with people that had a story and maybe had a bit of a past, but perhaps were potentially brilliant, but just hadn't delivered on, on that potential, but just kind of needed that environment. And just at every stage, show that we were very honest with everybody that we work with, be it our own staff, the families of our staff, the um, uh, lenders, clients, you know, everybody involved in, in the chain. And that's the hard bit. If you can get the culture right, if you can get, you know, I remember an old boss of mine was talking about, you know, it's quite apt in development finance, was talking about what's really important is getting your foundations right in, in construction. If you don't get your foundations right and they're not correct, you will never be able to build a sustainable quality building. Well, that's the same with a business. Planning and choosing that, getting that culture right are your foundations. And if you get, it's actually easier to get that wrong than it is to write. And then along the along the process, however you, whatever you think in your business plan, it never goes to plan. The one thing that is guaranteed is that nothing will ever go to plan, right? And you just got to, you just got to embrace it. Don't fear it. It's just the way it is. And then, you know, there'll be there'll be times every day that you make bad decisions. You you make the wrong decision. And the thing is about making the wrong decision. There's only one thing worse than making a bad decision is making no decision. So you've got to make sure that you you build up your knowledge base, that you're bright enough to remember the things that didn't go well and ensure. And as I always say to all my people, you make a bad decision. It's, it's just a decision that didn't work out the way expected. It just don't make it again. Just use that knowledge of that decision to make a better decision next time. And then when you got to a point and everybody's on the 
on the same page. What you'll find at various times, in, in my opinion, you'll find the odd terrorist. You'll never get recruitment completely right. You'll never, you know, get everybody here happy. And there'll always be a case you go, that person's wrong. We're wrong for them. They're wrong for us. And, you know, you have to be, you have to be um, ruthless enough when you make a bad decision to, to just accept you made a bad decision rather than just let it go and just hope it's going to be all right. So uncompromising and ruthless in the pursuit of what you want. And then, you know, it, it's not a question. It's not Stepford Wives. You're not trying to get people and, you know, sort of change their personality. So they're, they're all clones of themselves. Far from it, actually. But you kind of agree there's a set of principles that we all subscribe to, you know, um, transparency, honesty, integrity, treating each other fairly, love what we do. And actually, you know, from the point when we first meet people at interview, this is our culture. You go and speak to our people. You spend time in our business before you accept you want to come here. Right. And and this is our culture. If you don't like that and that's not your that's not what you want, then don't join us. You know, I can, I can think of a handful of occasions over the course of the last decade plus where people have done that and gone. Yeah, no, it's not for me. Thank you. And it's like, that's fine. It's like, well, that is great from both perspectives. That's great. So learn, develop, evaluate um, and also ensure that, you know, there is there is some legacy. You know, you can't just be you can't just be making money and that's it. Making money at all cost. What are we all here for? You know, you want to make sure that, 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 that there's some legacy to what you do. And then after we're here anymore you've left something for the next generation you know and um and i think my i have to say i think my age group is pretty good like that um maybe it's because um we've been through quite tough periods you know in terms of um recessions and um you know the global economic crisis of, of seven and eight uh where most of us more or less lost everything and had to start again and you know, we kind of uh, rejected a lot of the bullshit about mass materialism and everything else and just, you know, start with relationships. So I think that's really important. You know, always act with uh, with honesty with everyone you deal with. Um, never lose your sense of integrity and, and also never forget people have got a choice. You know, people aren't forced to work here. They have lots of options. I'm sure there's people out there that are able to demonstrate to people that they'll pay them more here and now. So, you know, it's not a given that people uh, people have to stay and, uh, you know, it's not a given that that um, anything's there. So we've, we've had to be uh, and what we also have, of course, the other thing I haven't mentioned is it's, it's good when you to use a football analogy. You've got a 30 goal a season centre forward and we have, you know, a Cambridge edu educated um, psychologist who happens to be married to me and uh, is our uh, chief uh, people officer whose job is just to make sure that the culture that that I created that she's refined and improved on stays and our people are happy because happy people work harder they're more productive they're, 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 there's better staff retention so we have got that person we have got that person and um, you know, she's she's not a cheap person to employ, but her value is uh, is priceless. Is priceless. Yeah, and um, you know, I, I know I I I know that I, I know of Claire, and uh, you know, her reputation is is incredibly strong um, within uh, within the industry, and obviously within Brightstar as well. 
Um, you talk about happy, happy employees. What does that look like? Because I think, you know, because when I when I picture, I think one of the, the challenges that I, you know, I, I have when picturing what good looks like um, is, is, is drawing that balance between employees with a sense of purpose who understand their why, but who are also valued. And how do you, how do you find that balance? How do you, you know, because I, I guess there's, there's lots of companies, particularly in the tech sector, who, who, who offer unlimited holidays, who are, you know, all the food and drink that you could imagine, you know, essentially giving staff all these all these perks um my experience is is that i'm not sure and maybe it's the, a cultural thing for the nature of the people that, that work for us that that actually what they don't, they don't necessarily want all the perks that you know that, that so the tech companies would give them what they really want is a a sense of purpose and to be paid well they'd rather we we pair back what we spend on all the all the, the sort of the frippery and actually just redirected that to to better basic pay and bonuses but in your case what is what what is you know what is what is happy or what does good look like from an employee standpoint so i think i think it starts right at the beginning when um the analogy i'd use is when you go fishing when you go fishing for uh, resource for, for human resource you know you have to understand what you're looking for and actually culturally you have to understand um, what will attract you. And we um, we do a lot of um, personality profiling pre and, and post employment, whereby we're really, really getting into the DNA of, of the individual and really genuinely understanding the, the person that we are working with um, and getting rid of the veneer that's there in terms of what they think they are and what they say they are to what they actually are. So that's the first thing. That's a really, really important first step to actually get into that situation where you actually know what, what you've got. And then I think it it it, it starts with you know, people like to be able to talk openly and freely. They need to be given uh, an environment where they are able to safely express themselves on how they feel. Uh, so there's a, there's a, a non-prejudicial environment that they understand that irrespective of any um, so-called you know, uh, social markers, there is absolutely total meritocracy within the workplace um, and that they are um, able to be respected. And you know, we all work in an open plan office. Uh, I will always make it my point in making sure that I speak to every single member of the team and the business I'm in at least once a day. Now that that's a, that is a, a quite a big commitment at times because kind of you don't want to just you know saying hello to someone and good night is not is not really speaking to someone. It's making the effort to actually because it's kind of at that point you kind of really get to understand if someone is in a place because you've you've spoke to them a few days and you kind of get that. So so I think that's important. But but. I guess what I'm trying to say is, is quite simply this. We want to give our people um, a certain number of things, but in return, we we demand that they return, re return and give us that um, in return. So all those things I talked about earlier, 
we give them, but we expect them in in return. And then everybody knows where they stand. You know, um, we we I, I think you you have to accept people make mistakes every day. I make mistakes every day, so you don't you know bash someone who's made a mistake. You just deal with it. You deal with it, and you if, if it's um, a knowledge gap or a personality gap, you just work with them to try and and try and improve that. And you know, no one comes to work to fail. I think we've got to remember that, right? No one comes into the office or, or into the workplace to be crap and to have a bad day. <laughs> they don't. People want to be successful and happy in their lives. They don't want to come in and be unproductive and rubbish. So, you know, you've got to kind of try and look at things in a in as positive light as you're able to. Which uh, when you're an old 52-year-old sinning like I am is, is always a little bit challenging. But you know, if I if I come into work in not a bad place uh, i've got colleagues around me that are prepared to, to challenge me on it and say to me are you okay today you know do you want to talk it goes for me as much as it does for them right yeah well, I, I think um as ever rob you you know you setting you set the standard in you know in, in the broking industry and the finance industry uh in terms of your, your results and the impact you have but i i think you probably also set the standard in terms of company culture and how how companies should be looking after and treating the staff so um as ever Thank great you. you deserve great credit for that and um yeah absolutely you you know the you set you set the standard um you're setting the standard here for for us all to emulate so uh you know hats off to you for that um can we talk a little bit about the 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 evolution of right of brightstar um and you mentioned 2007 2008 being a tough time and and then setting up 2010 if if my notes are correct yeah that's right Let, let's talk about how let's talk about the the sort of the lead up to it and and then the genesis of it and then we can talk about uh, how how it's evolved mm. um so how did how did you you know how, so let, if, starting with the lead up what was what did, what did that look like and what were you sort of experiencing in, during that time Oh, it's brilliant. It was the last days of Rome, but we just didn't know it. It was, you know, the 04, 05, 06, uh, first part of 07 was just the most, at the time, a magical time to be alive. You know, a, a, uh, a guy from a very ordinary background, you know, being able to to do and experience things that I never dreamed I would do. It was fantastic. And it was all about... Um, origination it was about the growth of non-conforming debt uh, largely influenced by the us and you know the 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 view that how the housing market would, would would never would never fall it would always be okay it was the safest investment you, you've seen the film the the big short the the safest investment going right um and and when you're when you're you know working in an industry that is so super confident almost sociopathic in the way that it operates you you believe that actually you believe the hype yourself that's why when um um when um the french bank uh in august um 2007 started having a bit of a problem and then in the uh september the run on northern rock and then the hiatus of, of that final that that first year you kind of thought hang on this wasn't in the script no one told me about this 
but you kind of we, we were still we were still of the, of, of the mind that this was all going to happen it's always like it's all going to be all right it's just going to be you know three or four months of unpleasantness uh was all gonna um subside and we're all going to get on with it and then of course fast forward a year you know the um the 14th of september 2008 lehman brothers collapsed and all bets were off and i remember being with a load of bear stearns executives in june 2007 at the four seasons hotel in park lane and they did a presentation to say there's nothing to see here there's no concern we're all okay this is all a media hype there is no problem with non-conforming debts and uh you know it, this is history and I, i'm i'm a i'm a great amateur historian uh my, my son's just going to university to read history i love history but that this was through history that you were living through you knew at that time that this was a really a real moment that in in a hundred years time people would still be talking about the collapse of lehman brothers the run on money and within within a, a few hours the whole global economic system just crashing down and the start of the end of civilization if it hadn't been halted and you just knew that this was something really historic so um i was very fortunate that four days before lehman brothers collapsed i'd already um secured the deal to work with mark harris and savage private finance uh mark is a great guy remains a great friend of mine despite his slightly dodgy football team crystal palace and uh you know i went to work with mark and his team for two years i promised him i'd stay there for two years uh, they, they weren't the best two years for, for for them with us because the market was was really difficult and after two years i i said to mark i wanted to go uh, mark was keen for me to continue working but was a gentleman and let me get on with it and um and that was when i started i just said you know i said to my wife uh one day i said look um i want to go again she said why what on earth would make you want to do that you know you, you're working with a really good company of, of, of FTSE 250 businesses plc were at that point you know they're good guys to work with you know i said but i'm an entrepreneur i just i've got to do it i, I feel i want to be controlling my own destiny as much as i love working with these guys you know i'm an employee it doesn't suit me and she said well what have we got to gain I mean, in fact, she didn't. She said, "What have we got to lose?" I said, "Well, we haven't got much to lose now." I said, "Not, not, not much." She said, "Well, what have we got to gain?" I said, "I feel good about myself again." She said, "Let's go for it." So that was it. Uh, I got some CCAP investors, which was um, more straightforward than it maybe should have done. And my pitch, Michael, was the very worst pitch I've ever made at any stage in my entire life. And I'll tell you it in 15 seconds. I told my investors. Mm -hmm that I needed a small sum of money and I would keep it small. And the reason I'd keep it small is I'd almost guarantee that they'd lose the money they were going to give me. And the good news for them is it wouldn't be creeping death. They would lose that money reasonably quickly because <laughs> there really was no market. And therefore, the money that they were going to invest in me, they should accept that they were never going to get a return back on that. However, if I proved myself and the market wrong, it would be the best investment they ever made and each of those people um perhaps as entrepreneurs themselves got that they got the brutal honesty of the situation if i tried to you know 
make it sound like it was all great. They'd have gone, that's just bullshit. We just know the market is absolutely in a state of just closure, deep slumber, unable to open any time soon, if ever again. Um, but they believed in me and they 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 were to, to a man saying, if I'm going to take a punt on someone, it's going to be on you and it's going to be on you. And I reckon you're going to do it. And you know what? In that first year, we just about survived. I know that's not the story. The story is it was brilliant. From day one, we hit the ball out of the park. We didn't. We just about made enough money to get into year two. It was that close. Uh, 13 years later, they will see that as and they have told me it remains the best investment they've ever made for those that have stayed on the journey, which is most of them actually. And and let's um, I mean, clearly they clearly they weren't buying the opportunity. They were buying you as as an individual. Um, when you started when you started Bright Star, was it just you? Or, you know, how many people did you start with? And 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 and, and you know, because obviously now 100 people plus. You know, how how do we get from how do we get from A to B? What what did that yeah. look like? And I guess probably the early years are always the more interesting ones because, as you say, they're the toughest ones. You know, you're kind of getting off the feet off the ground. They're the ones that I, I imagine a lot of our listeners who are aspiring entrepreneurs, whether in your industry or in outside of outside of the property and finance world. What what did that look like? What was your experience there? How, so it's, how did, never, it's never been just about me. And, and uh, you know, I'm a rugby man. My my uh, launch pad was the best front row that, that could exist. Um, I had uh, my colleagues Kit and Brad that are still with me 13 years later, who came at things with different skill sets. You know, we were all very, very different. You know, uh, Brad was massively organised, you know, very, very focused on structure. Um, Kit was very, very creative and as a as a fantastic musician, uh, would take us to places within the digital journey that I would never have thought of, you know, and I was a, a reasonably strong leader and, you know, had good connections. So I think we were all, and as we still are, we're all like ridiculously different in the way that we are. Um, and that was the basis. I said to the guys, you know, we'd all worked together for lots of years. I said to them, right, I've got you six months money. Uh, that's it. If we get past six months, we've been successful. If, if we haven't got past six months, this hasn't worked out. But at least when you're having your last breath on this planet, at least you can say you tried. And we gave it a go. We gave our best. And it is going to be um, it is going to be finished business, not going to be unfinished business. We would have scratched this itch. And then really, I couldn't have wished to get, to got two better blokes to start off with. I love them to bits. They're brilliant friends. They're an extension of my family. They've remained loyal to me as much as I have them. Um, and testament to them, years later, they're still with me on the journey. And all you've and then the challenge, really, Michael, and this is the hard part, is when you start off to such a good start with the people you've got around you, like where do you go from there? I mean, you can only fail. But actually, we got a little lucky. We got some incredible people working with us. Uh, most of them are still with us lots of years after. We've lost a few of them along the way, sadly. That's life. Uh, but, you know, they were all great, great people. And, you know, uh, we, we, the, the whole basis of, of newbies, when newbies come into this business, it's really important that the culture can't be created by one person. The culture be, needs to be created by everyone. And, you know, my stakeholders, my, my, my co-workers, my stakeholders, they were all inextricably linked. They're as important to the continuation of good culture as I am, you know, because they're the ones here every day. They're the living embodiment. 
but you know they've gone through a journey and they'll see bright star and they'll see Sirius, and and in in a while they'll see soul star as extensions of them that they're proud that they work for a business that they feel massively emotionally linked to and, and when you know on the court occasions that I, i'm lucky enough to, to to see family members there's nothing more gratifying when you know a, a mum a dad a husband a wife a partner uh, whoever it is a child will come up and have a really well-informed conversation about how how the individual loves working here still you know and all the things that they've gone through and bits and bobs and it's it's brilliant it's absolutely it's more addictive than the most addictive drug for me anyway not that i've taken the most addictive drug but if i did i think this would be more addictive for me well, I, I guess because it, it's, satis- it's very satisfying, very fulfilling, clearly. Um, and, you know, it's experience that I, sh- that, that I share, uh, that I would say that I share in as well. So, um, you know, a- again, another testament to, to obviously the, the great job that you've done in, in providing a, a fulfilling workplace for people to, to feel like that they're doing, you know, good work, meaningful work. Um, I suppose along the journey, you, you you started with three of you. You're now a hundred. When where was the inflection point? Where did you really take off? When do you when would you say you really took off in terms of growing numbers and headcount? You know, because I, I think the last time I checked was about six, you know, I don't know, 50, 60 people within Brightstar. So obviously you've, you've added a lot more bodies, but that's kind of not surprising given the uh, given the sort of meteoric success that that you've enjoyed, but. You know, where would you say the real tipping point was in terms of going from a, you know, three man band or, you know, a five man band to being the sort of Goliath of the of the industry? Well, 13 years, 13 and a half years, a long time. I mean, 12 by 12 is what, 144, isn't it? So yeah. you think 144 months uh, plus another 12. So, you know, almost 160 months in business. And actually, if you look at it and you go, what we've done is we've been actually really boring with our increase in headcount. We've not gone at any stage, we need 10 staff, we need 20 staff. We've done things gradually because that's the only way that we could, number one, be sure that we've got the right staff and number two, the right environment and structure for when those staff join us to give them the right support. So actually, you know, I'll turn it on my head and say, we probably haven't we haven't been that aggressive at all i don't i i i think actually at times we've kind of lacked a little bit of ambition but but pre um designed lack of ambition because we wanted it to be like this because we have taken our time and i, I, I yeah i can think of a couple of you know uh, pick up points when you know particularly you know, when you open a new business you you clearly need more staff but if if i look at on our group um, website, we've got a um, a graph showing our headcount year by year, and actually it's dull. It's just it's 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 proportionately increasing. It's never like that. It's like that, you know. But obviously, you know, the, the bigger you get, if you're taking sort of five percent headcount, you know, five percent headcount extra of of ten is two. Five percent of a hundred, you know, is five. You know, it's a lot. It's a lot more. So the bigger you get, you just probably take on a few more bodies but the infrastructure has to be right so you know that, that's what I say I mean you know I, I try and mentor a few guys that start in business just because um, if, if they'd asked for it I certainly wouldn't volunteer it 
but I just say to them, be patient. You know, don't don't try and you know, go Pesley, Desiderata. Don't kind of look at others for the way that you should run. Run the business to your instinct, to your experiences, to what you do. But just be patient. It's not built overnight, and you know, it doesn't always. It won't go to plan for sure. It absolutely won't go. Let just agree if you want something to go to plan, don't start a business because you'll be disappointed. It won't happen. Yeah. So 160 months in business. Actually, um, I don't want to burst the bubble, but slightly less than 100 staff, not a lot less than 100, but slightly less than 100, uh, to be honest and transparent, not far off. Um, you know, and and we're still recruiting, but we're recruiting ever so slowly because the market is certainly feeling a little bit strained at the moment. So maybe we, you know, that 5% annual headcount won't look like 5% headcount. It might look a little bit less than that. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you talk about just touching on recruitment because it sounds, so it sounds like you've grown quite in kind of very steady linear fashion. It wasn't yeah, a kind it of, it wasn't a kind of, but because it, certainly from, you know, our experience was a bit more, you know, sort of, we bumbled along and then there was a you know then we had some big spikes probably sort of three four years ago and uh you know two three four years ago and and then things sort of settled down to a more a more natural level um in, in terms of in terms of recruitment the i mean do, do you find that quite difficult is is that is is that is that challenging particularly in a, a hotter you know i i know that employment data yesterday slightly softer than it has been but do you it's still a pretty hot jobs market unemployment rate's still quite low it is 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 employment or finding the right people is that is that your biggest challenge uh at yeah. the moment on a day-to-day -day basis so so what um what my people hear me say all the time is if you recruit when you need someone you'll make a bad decision because you'll uh you'll have a a fairly small pool of opportunity. Um, you'll be very time bound on getting that person. Uh, you'll be under market conditions at the time, and if if you know it's difficult to recruit, they'll, they'll be paying a premium. So that's the worst thing you can do. The worst thing you can bear with me because this this might seem illogical at the moment. The recruitment process never ever stops. It never ever stops, even when you've got, and we have had them in the past, recruitment freeze. We're not going to employ anyone. We want to just see where the market is going. But you're always looking. You're always lining people up. You know, the the best, um, my football club, Brighton and Albion, you know, very much um, up there at the moment as the way to run a club. And what do they do? You know, they're already looking at, you know, Deserve is our manager. They're already, they're already, they've already found Deserve is replacement. Potter's replacement was Deserby when he, when he was at Dynamo um, Kiev. You know, it, it's the same. This we're always got to be looking. You know, it. I can think of I can think of a couple of people particularly. One in one good example took me four years, four years to get them on board. You know, if if it was a you know if it was a, a, a woman, you'd have given up the chase years ago. But you know, sometimes it's just not the right time. Sometimes it's just not the right environment. And sometimes they're just not quite ready for it and but that's the thing recruitment cannot happen 
when you need to recruit. It needs to, you need to have people ready at any stage in in any sort of roles that you're looking at. You know, and also with your key people. You know, I, I, I'm not saying I've learned from it. It's just something we've always done. I've always got succession management in every position within my business. I never take for granted any of my key people are going to stay forever. So I've always looked, always look at, okay, who can do your job? Have I got someone internally? And I always peer, we always peer manage. We always try and get, you know, two or three people within the same role working really closely together. You know, to give to give some, you know, when you go on holiday, you want to be able to enjoy your holiday and not worry about who's you're the only person in the business can do that part. You want a team that can do it for you. It's not to make you feel inadequate, but actually, by definition, you probably play to your top game because there's a bit of competition. Does a does a, a, a football squad squad of 25 um, get better results than a squad of 15? Absolutely, because there's competition for places. That just keeps people a little bit more minded to be at the top of their job most of the time, with the knowledge that there's always people behind to replace you. But in terms of succession management, you know, I had succession management for for me, you know. In my business, people can can within my exec group can tell anyone from outside if they so minded what happens if I drop down dead tomorrow. We've already got that succession management in place, and that's really really important. Well, I mean, likewise, succession planning is something that's been at the forefront of my mind for for some time, especially given myself and Zahir now not at, not on the operational side of, of Avonmore, for example. So. You know, you have, you know, you have CEO and a CEO and Dimitri and you speak about taking time to to get a key person. I think uh, it took me about two years to get Dimitri on board. So I uh, can completely relate to that. Yeah. Um, and what a great guy he is. Right. That's a great example. Another Arsenal fan, unfortunately. But, yeah, you know. my, my my apologies for that. But what what, what can we do? There, there are quite a lot of us, unfortunately, for the rest of the world. Yeah, um, more, more so much in the last year or so. It seems to yeah. be more than we have found in the last year for some reason. I'm not sure why. Yeah, what, what's, what's, what a surprise. That's uh, I'm, I'm shocked by that revelation. Um, I mean, speaking of challenges, what, what would you say was probably the most challenging time, barring the kind of the, those first six to 12 months, which were, you know, which were sort of post-crisis? What would you say the most difficult period you've had in, in, in Brightstar since then? uh and and how did you respond to that because obviously you you're you seem to be someone who thrives in the face of adversity but what what were the what were the most adverse moments since the start and and how did you how did you see it work your way through them yeah uh march and april 2020 uh the start of covid absolutely easy answer really easy answer um you know never 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 saw anything like that a global pandemic before didn't understand what it was all about, had so much information, so many people sort of shouting knowledge at you about what you should and shouldn't do. Um, And, you know, realistically, at that point in time, we faced the very real prospect of our business not surviving, actually, as I think most of us were, right? Mm. And saying, okay, how do we operate our business? from an environment that is just so out of character. You know, as a people-centric business, how on earth could we survive? How on earth could we operate? And how could we could we continue to to perform? It was horrible. And I remember um 
one of my um, one of my non-executive director directors who was a, a former CFO of a, a freighted business, a really, really good learned guy um, in his early 60s, uh, a brilliant mentor. You know, we were talking um, most nights into the small hours um, with our business planning. And, uh, you know, I was going, well, we, we, we can't nine times, nine times we down forecast, nine times we revised our forecast, nine times. And every time I said, can't go down again. We can't cut any. We can't. It can't be. It can never be this bad. I mean, I think the last one was was uh, on the assumption that eighty percent of the market would disappear. Would disappear. So we were only going to operate on twenty percent of the available market on an ongoing basis. I mean, how the hell do you uh, disassemble a business that quickly? to deal with a market that small. Well, look, the good news is, and it, it was something I'll always be grateful of, was um, the fact that we had furlough, the fact that we were able to continue to gainfully employ people, albeit at lesser salary to what they were on, because the government allowed us the ability to keep that. And actually, if they hadn't have done, we would have, we made some redundancies, we lost some colleagues, we lost some great colleagues, um, but, we would have lost an awful lot more colleagues if it wasn't for furlough and um that was the most difficult period because you know we didn't know what was going to happen um i i started a um a vlog and you know i remember the first time i did it uh, i think i got to about a minute and a half and i i had to stop it because i was in tears because i felt so low and so frightened and i was trying to give this this sort of perception that I was absolutely yeah I'm in control and this is all going to be okay I didn't think it was I wasn't in control and I I, I started crying as a result of it thinking am I, am I losing the plot here I'm thinking well yeah probably am I'm probably in keeping with most people you know I, I'm scared about my family I'm scared about my elderly relatives I'm worried about my ability to function economically and I'm worried about about everything and it felt like every single there was no positive news was there for, for for what seemed like ages it was all dark and negative and and um just just zapping but we were the first company in the uk specialist market to in fact we were second ying tang when he was at dynamo was the first to lock down we were the second we were the first company to get back to the to the physical office as early as a day after the first opportunity. I think it was after May Bank on maybe early June 2020. And you know, it was two teams a day each. Every every night we got someone in to deep clean the office and to to do the um the, the, the chemical clean, which I think was probably as dangerous as it was getting COVID actually with hindsight, but we did it because that's what, you know, we had all the special panels on the doors and, and you know, we, we did that to get people back to work because we actually believed that working in the physical office was what our business thrived on. And we were, we were unapologetic and we were saying, look, this is, this is, if you feel like you don't want to work in the office for your career, you, you probably just need to, choose a different company because that's that's way that's the way we believe and and you know what that's that's three years ago and three years three years later a lot of the banks um are now you've got to be careful what you tell people right if you tell people that they can work from home forever 
and you recruit people for a London business, you recruit them in Northern Ireland and Scotland and the Orkney Islands where they can't possibly commute into a physical office. Then you need to stick with that because what you can't do is a few years later say, oh, well, it's all changed. We've changed our mind again because you've given that commitment. And I'm afraid, I hate to say I told you so, but I did feel that this was going to this was going to happen. You know, that we took a leap of faith. We we researched it. We talked to our people. We explained what we were doing. We gave people the support if they didn't want to come into the office because they were anxious for a period of time. And then we were fully committed to it. So, yeah, that was really tough. That actually had the ability to make and break us as people um, and, and certainly as an entrepreneur and a leader of a business. And I, I reckon it, it might have come close to breaking me at one point, but I just about stuck in and I got through it. Yeah, uh, it, certainly a, a, a similar experience, I think, echoed by others, others from the broken community that it was difficult. But I mean, we we saw, you know, we saw some lenders go under during that time. I'm sure some smaller brokers probably did um, fall on hard times as a result, but um, probably didn't have your profile uh, uh, at the time. And understandably, when you've got such a big machine like yours, if it's you know if it's if you can't if you can't feed it with transactions that are going to ultimately result in fees, how you you know how do you sustain that? Understandably, um, it's it it it's uh, you know, and and obviously we're very pleased that things things we're on the other side of that now and things have worked, 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 worked their way through um well the in terms of um i'll tell you what i, I was i wanted to um I, I have a good question for you because i actually want to follow up on uh on the point you're making about about around remote working but i actually have a, a question from uh, Dan Greenhouse um, of Podium Recruitment. Dan's a, one of the top recruiters in the specialist finance industry. And um, Dan's based up in Manchester, but he's asked, uh, what are the main challenges of growing a specialist finance business outside of London? Now, obviously, um, Billericay's not that far from London, but it is outside of London. You, you know, you, you, you have a narrow, narrow geographic uh, pool of people to, to draw from than if you've been based um, 30 miles further west. Yeah, uh, another another good question. So 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 there's 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 two challenges. Number one, if you are within a realistically and reasonably commutable zone of London, London will, particularly with Generation X, be like a magnet. It will be unless someone's been to London, it's not for them, and they're and they're great because you know they, they got that out of them. Someone straight from uni or straight from college that hasn't worked in London, you'll always be at the challenge that, you know, their peer group, some of them do work in London. And of course, they probably don't share that the six o'clock train in the middle of January in a dark, miserable station isn't much fun. They'll talk about the wild nights out and the, the London culture and everything. So you're always in competition with the so-called bright lights of the city. So that's a challenge. Um, the second challenge is when we try and uh, produce a business that is outside of our um, geographical area. So we have had a business uh, in Manchester before, which was really well run and had some great people in, but actually it didn't succeed. And the reason why it didn't succeed is because we couldn't quite we couldn't quite deliver the culture there that um, 
was our culture because you know when when our colleagues came down from manchester and they saw the way a lot of their colleagues were particularly in london and here it was like night and day it was, it was just different people you know and it was really that different so i think you know one has got to be careful that you, you you're mindful that um different regions have different cultures and you will fight that culture and you will it was very very difficult to to get into that you know it's very difficult to to be in essex and think you're going to open an office in glasgow because the scottish culture is different you know in the same way as manchester was mm. so i think you just accept and i've accepted now because of of uh, the things that have gone wrong but we we are a, a southern centric business geographically we deal with people from across the country happily in billericay will always be threatened with um, losing staff to London but if you've got a business in London that's great because all you do is you have the opportunity to perhaps transfer staff into your London business so that kind of takes care of itself um, and if you're outside of the area it's going to be very very difficult to you know to, to create a business that is in keeping with your culture because you know there are cultural differences in different parts of the country. Do you think it helps having a specialist lender located uh, located nearby um so that you, you know there's an opportunity to that, that people who are sort of trained and have experiences in 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 specialist lenders that are headquartered locally that some people might leave there and but might lending might not be for them and perhaps so, going into going into the broking space might work or or, is, or or do you not really take many people from from that business well i, I think there's two areas that are really good um, Greater Manchester is one and Essex is the other. If you look at a lot of, of, of specialist businesses in the city, outside of the city, um, a lot of the people that I speak to will say they're, they're, they're Essex staff are some of their best. We are mm. really fortunate to be in uh, a county of extroverts um, that, you know, uh, that, that, that the common misperception is that we're a load of thick idiots far from the, the reality of the truth very very bright people good schools uh, loads of social mobility loads of people that just want to get on and you know come from blue collar backgrounds and want to to have better things than their families have um, and, and i'm blessed i cannot think of a better place geographically and you'll know this because of your family connections to be based in this area because it's wonderful it's a wonderful place to do business lots of colorful um effervescent interesting people to work with perfect yeah well i i can't argue with that rob uh, as as you know um so yeah 100 agree with that and um and and can i i personally can see why you you've been so successful being in that area but hopefully that's uh that's that's helped um answer dan's question um we you, you talk about your london business um sirius was formed um I want to say around 2016 that sort of time or was it maybe a bit before that yeah um, what was what was the what was the spark what was the drive for for setting up Sirius um I suppose to sit alongside Brightstar as a as a sort of sister company and um yeah and 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 yeah and and, and I guess how because clearly Sirius is now has now grown into um you know into being quite a solid standalone business in its own right yes it has absolutely uh, well, we were so close to London and we saw, you know, from, from my time at SPF uh, and, and friends in other uh, 
big London brokerages, we saw the real potential that London gave. And um, the bit I didn't get, uh, and, and this is the bit I'll always happily share, is if you're going to be successful in London, you need to be unsuccessful in monetary terms for at least three years. You have to chuck more money at it almost at times as much as you can afford because it is just a stupidly expensive place to do business. Everything, um, resource, you know, rent, rates, you know, uh, everything. Getting there, getting home, eating out, everything is just so much more expensive. So yeah, you can be seduced by the headlines and the, the big deals that you know people read about, which you know some of some of which have come from us. But behind that is the reality that you won't make money for quite some time. And actually, you might ne you might never make money. But actually, you get to a point that at some point within your business plan, you'll see things start to turn. And that's the thing. London was always a massive attraction because, you know, it's a global capital. It's right on our doorstep. A lot of our people have worked there. A lot of our people would want to work there. A lot of my time was spent in London. So why on earth would I want to do it? But what we did it, what we, how we did it, we did it slowly. We did it with a, a start team. Uh, and we grew it over a period of time and we worked with people to attract them into that business, uh, again, most of which uh, are still here. And we actually we actually mirrored Brightstar. You know, we did exactly the same process. We did. We got the right people at the right time with the right culture, the right ethos, and the right environment with the right market. We didn't try and diversify into too many things. We stuck to what we were good at. We we had a, a fantastically brilliant culture within that business. Um, and, you know, eight years later, and so I've got to be reminded in two years time, we, we get through a decade there. Um, you know, it's it's still in the market. It's doing really well. And um, it's it's one of the it won't be the biggest, but it's certainly one of the heavyweights within the London um, property and and lending market. So yeah, I'm really proud of that business. It's 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 brilliant. But again, this is this is not what you it's not maybe what people are meant to say. We lost a horrific amount of money for a few years on that. We didn't start making money in real terms until yeah month 37 in that business. I think sometimes you, you people people need to hear the the unvarnished truth and that you know sometimes these ventures they take time to come to fruition so much of today's culture is some expectation that everything's everything and everyone's an overnight success and you know that you it's like it's like the iceberg isn't it you see the tip of the iceberg which is the sort of the success part but there's so much of so much of that is actually the bit under the surface that you don't see so yeah and and Sandby, and, and i know and i know firsthand you not it's not just a financial benefit of of, of what 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 Sirius does for you because we've seen someone like Andy Jacovu who's was was with you in in Billericay and has now moved over to to Sirius and been successful and it's, it's, as one example of an individual where you've got you've got the ability to retain key staff who maybe want and need a new challenge and you're you're able to at least provide that for them so I think that's yeah I agree a, and Jack and Jacko is a great example he's a great great example he was a brilliant advisor here for many years but he just got bored with it. He just wanted to change. He wanted to go in London. He wanted to be nearer to Enfield, where his where his daughter and his wife live. Um, he didn't want to be in the business five days a week, and he wanted to to work in a slightly different way. And he made that adjustment. We've supported him in, in, while he made that transition, and he's been 
he's been super successful in in doing that so abs- absolutely right it's it's kind of that that further option and i think the the insurance business now gives us that as well because it gives particularly people within our support team a different product line we've also uh, you know recently launched into other product lines which which will give people the opportunity to move on so yeah it's 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 worked really really well but uh, listen Michael, if if you you know if you ask me this was all in the master plan, wasn't it? No, absolutely not. No, the, the master plan quite simply was survive year one, get into year two. That was the master plan. That was the only thing we were trying to achieve by the start of this business. All of this stuff is, is this, these are recent, recent Johnny come ladies. These are things we've evolved into. This wasn't on the game plan, not at all. But you, you, you mentioned Soulstar and I, I was always going to ask about it because it's, you know it's an area of fascination for me anyway in terms of the the vertical integration of of other um you, you know of other service lines into into the advisory space and certainly we've seen that with howden's acquisition of spf we've seen what with mantra being acquired by an accountancy firm um before i i, I want, wanted to ask you know what what ha, what was the motivation for, for Soulstar? how did it how's it come about and then you know it is your intention to 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 build a sort of full service uh, financial services group that that offers a pretty much full vertical integration in terms across the service lines that that you have to offer? No, it's not. I, I, I don't think we're we're going to move into wealth management, which I guess is the next uh, big opportunity because the the regulatory risk and um, setup cost and um, all of that can go wrong in that is is not something having done that in the past is not something i'm really keen to do so i think there's a kind of limit to a, 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 a vertical integration i think general insurance was an easy one i mean you mentioned um spf and howdens you know there, there's very few things that are new ideas they're just um other people's ideas that you look at and you go that works well you know spf had a really successful general insurance business for many years really really successful business and um you know uh, i was lucky enough to, to work in that business just for a couple of years and i could see that in the early days and obviously the the, the acquisition was that you know howden's had built up a great back book with them and that was a an obvious uh, deal for them to go to the next level so it was always obvious i just needed someone who knew what they were doing to run it i was lucky enough uh to find um guy called Solomon who's uh, just a just a super super bloke um, actually Sol lives uh, part of the month out in Sosa Grande he sold his general insurance business a few years back for quite a lot of money um, so he's he's an entrepreneur he comes from a property family um, he wants to live in Spain because that's where his children are educated in the in the English school in Sosa Grande yet he comes back um, twice a month and we are able to run that business with his team back in the UK uh, with remotely with his contacts. So I bought I bought a um, I bought a business because I bought an individual and a leader. And I also bought the vertical integration of what they could do and thought, well, this is an easy fix. I just need the right person to run it. It's got the right culture, the right experience, knows what they're doing, is really well known in that industry for being a good guy and doing really well and culturally was absolutely on our page we were hugely blessed with having him come in to our universe for mm-hmm. sure 
and and so in and I suppose in terms of buying buying businesses, are, are you still you know are you in in acquisition? Are you still going to be in acquisition mode if there's if there are good opportunities? And what about the longer term? What, what about the longer term future of, of Brightstar? Is, is there is there a point in the future where potentially Brightstar gets acqu- gets acquired by someone else? You know, is is you know what does that look like? You know, I suppose five ten years from now, you know, is 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 Brightstar likely to remain a, an independent uh, independent business, or, or or could you see a future of particularly as you're kind of as you get to uh, get closer to retirement, do you see a situation where um, Brightstar becomes part of a, a, a another organisation. Yes, um, and in the last two years, we've had um, a number of very serious um, conversations with potential acquirers, and uh, you know we've we've on one occasion come reasonably close to being acquired. And you've got to remember, back in 2015, uh, we sold 20% of 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 our stock to a PE house. Yeah, we we acquired their uh, reacquired their stock uh, back last year uh, in a whole cash deal. So you know I'm used to doing deals. I'm used to trading. You know this this take the emotion away. This is just a commodity, right? This is a platform for uh, for value, and 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 its value comes from the people within it. So you know. I, Yes, absolutely. I'd always have a conversation with with uh, with anyone that wants a conversation with it. I think it makes sense as the market starts to get a bit tougher to tie in distribution. I think it makes more sense now than it's ever made, and particularly distribution that's safe, that's reliable, that you know might be seen as a bit boring by by some, but actually it's really good. Boring's good. Boring's good in this market. Safe, secure is good. Uh, I, I think yes, I'm getting I'm getting older. I've got young people in the business that are leading the business and will lead the business better than I can at a certain point. Um, in some areas, they are certainly now. So uh, I think there will come a time. I'm not sure that that time is going to happen anytime soon because because here's here's the point, right? So in in real terms, this is an easy business to buy, right? No let no legacy. Um, you know, good value, good profit, good people, good culture, all of that. But do, does it doesn't acquire by by me in it, and by buying me in it, uh, am I going to be a little bit like a, a wild lion, you know, going to be put in a cage? Am I going to be able to to bring out the best in my business and their investment by leading it, or should they just go, okay, he's the entrepreneurial owner, he was the founder, we get rid of him. Is there enough people and enough experience here to actually? Um, give the acquirer real value and and I think that's probably the bit I want to make sure that I don't become a bitter old man I'm, you know I've got loads of money but I just don't really want to be here but similarly I don't want to leave my guys who've worked guys and girls who work really hard for me over lots of years you know just left out the drive because I made a few quid so there has to be that perfect that balance and that balance means that it's really difficult to get the right acquirer but they will they're out there um, as I said to my my eldest son, you know, your future partner is out there. You just haven't met him yet. I might have met him. I might not have met him, but they're definitely out there. And there will definitely be a time when uh, when I go and do something uh, more meaningful than run a specialist finance business. Uh, I don't know if that will be any time soon, but there again, it might be. Yeah, well, I, I think I, I think everything you just said 
makes total sense. And um, yeah, I, I think the um, su- the succession planning that you're doing, that you've done, will mean when that day arrives, that the, the, the acquirer arrives, you know, hopefully you'll be in a position where whether you stay or go is 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 ultimately up to you and whether you want to be there or not. So, um, we'll, we'll I guess we'll we'll, we'll watch the space and we'll we'll see how things play out. Um, I'm conscious of time and I think we probably uh, we'll, we can start to wind down now. Um, another another question from Adam Stiles actually, and you you mentor uh, mentioned mentoring. Um, and I normally have a question actually anyway, more of a standard question, which is, um, you know essentially you know who which people or past events inspire you or give you motivation to succeed but I think Adam's question was did you have a mentor uh, that gave you guidance and and what what tips did your mentor give you yeah absolutely I've had um, I've been like hugely lucky to have some really good mentors and I, I can think of um, I can think of five or six straight away you know and uh, the, the, fun enough, it, it's kind of those those kind of pearls of wisdom that they give you that at the time you go, wow, that's amazing. And then you think about years later, you think, well, that's really simple. And actually, most of them are simple, but the, the brilliance of them is their simplicity. And also the brilliance of them is most people don't do them. So I can think of, 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 of lots of examples. And actually, funny enough, you, you you learn as much, don't you, Michael, from people that do things badly than people who do things right. So actually, as as motivational, as really good mentors that I've been lucky to have, have been people that I've worked with who've been terrible because I kind of looked at them and I've looked at the effect that they have on the people around them and, and gone, God, I never want to be like that. Uh, so you, you've always got you've got the, the two sides. You've got the, the people that have done things really badly and you go, right, I'll never be like that. And you've got these sort of pearls of wisdom that you've kind of taken the ones a bit off everybody. So you haven't sort of followed someone like they're, they're like some messiah and everything they say you do, because that's not healthy either. But you've kind of picked out bits that that, that work for you, and resonate to your personality and you put the two together. And between them, you've got the basis of a fairly good basis in which to be successful on. Yeah, I mean, I think that's I, I think that's. Uh... I think I think that's right, and I, I'd say even in my own experience, the, the people I've worked with, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking one. You talk about people who've got things wrong, but even even he, even he, you know, his, his life was sort of falling apart before my eyes. But even he, you could learn about things not to do. But also, I think even he had some pearls of wisdom that would be um, that would be useful. Like you know, even people who aren't successful can still be can still have the right things to say. I think. The expression I learned from someone was uh, who, who wasn't a particularly successful business person, certainly not when I was involved with them, was you catch more flies with honey than vinegar. And it, and it and it's just it's amazing how that stuck with me after all these years, um, despite the fact that the individual who said it probably wasn't the, the most successful person. But but also the, the things that they were getting wrong, you, you also get the opportunity to learn from. Um, just talk about. Um, family and personal life just as one of one of the final questions I always get this a very positive impression of you as a family man as a you know as a good husband and uh, and and father to your children of two boys as 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 a father of of three boys uh, a few years younger than yours what advice do you would you give to um 
to dads out there, particularly those who are, you know, who've got boys, um, you know, who are, who are growing up and young and impressionable and, um, you know, hopes and dreams and fears and all the rest of it. It's the hardest job in the world, Michael, isn't it? Is yeah. Being a parent is the hardest job in the world. Running this group is child's play compared to trying to work with children, my children. It's the hardest job in the world. And I don't think anything can ever quite prepare you for that. So so my, my two boys are 18 and 15. My, my oldest son goes to university next week. Um, and and I kind of look at their life and I can think of so many times and I've got it wrong. So many things I've done that I, I could I could sort of curl up in a ball and cringe and go, oh, my God, I can't believe I did that. But again, it's just kind of understanding that we're, we're only we're fallible. We we learn on the job. You know, we didn't go to university to learn how to be parents. And even if we had it done, we wouldn't have learned even 10 percent of what it is to be a parent. And I think also the, the fact that you just you go through zones, don't you? You kind of think, right, OK, we just got to get through this bit. And then with a certain knowledge that that will just move you into the next zone, which will give you a whole set of challenges that you need to master and you need to find a way um, around. I think being a child these days feels to me a, lot, a much more difficult outcome than being a child when we were children. Actually, I, I have um, concerns and anxieties for all children and especially my own because you kind of see the effects of of phones and the whole digitalization and the whole instant gratification world that actually generation z uh, we have created for them and we have created them for them so you know i, I i'm not sure i'd ever give any uh, anyone else um advice on parenting because i've got it wrong as much as i've, I've got it right and I've just done my best. I've tried to be a really good dad. I've I've tried to learn from from times when it's gone wrong. I've tried to grow with my children and um and and given them love and support and been there when things haven't worked out well for them and you know not judge them and try to get them to to grow up to be decent human beings whatever that takes them. I haven't always got that right, but I think I've got it on the balance of of, of reflection probably right more than i've got it wrong but i've got it wrong loads of times so many times how how do you how have you been able you know you've obviously got talented you know your, your children your children have been reasonably talented and been successful how have you have you enabled them to um you know kind of follow their own paths um and and, and have, obviously you're you're big in rugby i know one of your sons is very keen on rugby um as well but it's very it's very natural for a dad for, for a dad to encourage the boys to sort of follow the same path as them um how do you you know how do you a, a allow them the freedom to make their own choices and make their own decisions and follow their own path because they can't you can't live your dreams through their eyes right you cannot yeah. do that you cannot do that and it's tempting to do that and at times you know I, i've been guilty of doing that but they're not me and i'm not them and actually the way that they are is the way that they are I'm just fortunate that you know both children actually really enjoy rugby. They really like sport. They like football as well. We go down to Brighton and watch our team uh, uh, not so frequently because they play rugby a lot. My youngest son's really musical. I'm not musical at all, but I love going to listen to him play music because it's not something I've really done much of. And now I've done that, I think God, I've missed out on so much for a lot of my life because I really like music and I really like classical music but I wasn't really into it so I don't know I, I think sometimes here's the eureka moment right sometimes they're well, often 
their differences and their quirkiness and them being them opens up new avenues that you never ever thought you'd have and actually allows you to make your life even better and even more interesting and i have loved and i love being a father more than love being anything in the world and sorry claire um but being a dad is the most privileged thing i've ever done in my life well um I, hopefully i can pick some some of what you've just set up and i can learn from it and apply it and hopefully our listeners can too um last question um if you could speak to your younger self and give your younger self some advice what would you say that's a that's the hardest 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 question this is one of these questions you're always meant to get an answer for right um and i i don't even have i i, I have to this is this is off the cuff this i'm shooting from the hip here i think I would tell my younger self, never, ever, ever give up. Just always, always try and get to what you want to get to, but understand that that path is never going to be straight. That pathway is never going to be clear. There's going to be twists and turns that you never, that you often don't see. And when you think you're just there, you might have another one, but never, ever, ever give up. Always believe in what you're doing and, you know, just just go and try and, you know, dreams are great, but dreams aren't great if you don't live them. You've got to try and, and try and actually play out those dreams. And I've been really lucky in my life to to have to done a lot of things that I've always hoped I would do, but probably in terms of, my my economic starting life probably didn't have the chance to but similarly there's lots of things i haven't done that i still aspire to do so i've got an awful lot of living left and a lot of dreaming and a lot of dream catching going on uh but i'll, I'll never get them if i if i quit if i give up if i call it a day i've just got to follow those and at times you know you don't always get them but you get more of them uh, by trying well rob i wouldn't bet against you getting those things uh knowing you having known you for quite a few years now uh and, and knowing a little bit about you and now knowing a lot more about you as as our listeners so um rob want to thank you for for joining us here today um thank you i would say i would say if our i would say i would normally say uh at this point give you an opportunity to share your show, social media profiles uh if people want to get in touch but uh there won't be any social media profiles for them to get in touch with but if someone would like to would like to reach out to you uh what would be the best way via the bright star website or or, or yeah. a different way um the, the bright star will be sharing uh this with our followers on our social media platforms so i'm certainly not invisible i can still get be got to i'm you know regularly uh I'm, I'm not invisible but for sure yeah that will be the way the way forward but uh, you know, um, it's been great. Th thank you for for the time we spent together. You have opened me up like a can, I have to say. I am now going to go and have a lie down for an hour just to get my head straight. So uh, good. Uh, Michael Dean, Michael Parkinson, I salute you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Well, thank you, Rob. It's been it's been an absolute pleasure and we'll, we will talk to you again soon. Thank you. Take care. Cheers. <laughs>
big thank you goes out to the official sponsor of the Property Funder podcast, Avonmore Capital, a property bridging and development lender located here in London. They, as much as me, understand the importance of somebody's story and how they got to where they are. Lending on projects from just £250,000 across the entirety of England and Wales, their understanding of all development backgrounds and can help support you at any stage in a scheme, even if you just have one brick down. Visit www avonmorecapital.com to find out more about how they can help you in your development journey. Thanks so much for tuning into this podcast. I hope you can go away having learned something new and even picked up some new things to apply to your day today. Catch us in the next episode for another interesting story.